if we are alcohol, people say, okay, you are investing in alcohol. Okay, you create a CVC, so you are going to invest in new whiskeys or gin and vodka. No, we don't invest in new whiskey, gin and vodka. It's the other way around. We invest in everything which is around, which is new, part of that space. And people don't expect that. Hello, and welcome to the CVC Unplugged podcast from GCV. I'm Fernando Moncada. Many CVCs, because of their parents' core business, tend to have, for lack of a better term, high-minded or, or particularly noble missions, wh whether that's saving the planet from climate change or humanity from disease or, or anything else that may in some way contribute to the saving of the world. But then you have some investors who just want you to have a grand old time with the people that you care about. That's what Convivialité Ventures, the CVC unit of Pernod Ricard, aims to do. I'm joined on the show today by Stéphane Longuet, Managing Director of Convivialité Ventures, to talk about what it's like being, as one of his VC friends put it, a fund funding fun. With a portfolio boasting everything from drinks brands and gaming streaming platforms to activity booking platforms and delivery services, the unit takes a pretty broad view on what it means to bring people together and what settings that can be done in. In the aftermath of the pandemic, there's been a shift from socializing in person to in the home. And while people have reveled since the lockdowns ended, there's been something of a decentralization of social spaces. For an investor, that brings a number of pretty great opportunities. We talk about what those opportunities look like, what it's like being the standard bearer for investing in fun stuff, and the impact that a higher consumer demand for health and sustainability have meant, among other things. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to CVC Unplugged, and above all, enjoy the show. So, Stefan, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, I think uh, coming to us from from the West Coast, I'm based in London, so we're uh, we're on opposite sides of the day, really. We are. Good evening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good morning. And I'm really excited to speak to you because I, I feel that you know, whereas you know, a lot of other CVCs have these, um, you know, for, for lack of a better term, these kind of lofty goals, right? We want to decarbonize the world or cure disease and, and and make people healthier or give everyone financial freedom, but you guys are in the business of, of, of helping people have a good time, right? And I, I, I love that. Yeah, that, that's, that's what we are about. It's coming from uh, our corporate vision, our group vision, which is a creator of uh, conviviality. That's the vision and mission of uh, Pernod Ricard. So we are the second largest wine and spirits corporate uh, globally. And uh, our core business is uh, alcohol, but our mission is larger than this one. It's creator of conviviality, meaning bringing people together. And how does that translate into your kind of into your culture at at the CVC? Do you, I, I, I'm assuming your Christmas parties are, are are better than most other investment units, no? It's possible that we have better than average because we are we are in the Silicon Valley and uh, it's not their core business to you know develop product with wine and spirits. But you know it's it's part of our core value, what we call conviviality. It's inherited from uh, the founder of Ricard, uh, who created Ricard in 1932. He used to say, you need to make a new friends every day, meaning having going from bar to bar to sell your product, having people testing it. So it's, it's, it's a core value that has stayed since then. And it's part of the DNA uh, of the group. And, and, and you, you've been, you've worked at, uh, on and off at, at Bruno Ricard for, for quite a while, right? Tell, tell me a bit about your background uh, more generally and kind of how you got to founding Conviviality Ventures. Originally, I have a finance background, corporate finance background. I did a bit of uh, audit before at Deloitte and then joined Pernod Ricard a while ago as a you know, junior finance person in, in EHQ. And then I, I moved to Germany to become the, the CFO for our German uh, affiliate there. 
same after in Italy. Then when we acquired Absolute in 2008, I moved there to help to integrate the, the big company in, into the group, not only financially, but also from a cultural ways of working point of view. After that, I had the opportunity to move to another role and become managing director of a business unit of a portfolio of, of brands, of global brands, vodka brands across Poland and, uh, and Sweden. And, uh, and then a bit more than six years ago, our HQ, our um, leadership team in Paris, including our CEO, decided to create this venture arm that uh, was called already Conviviality Venture. They decided about the name coming from our vision. And they thought about me to, to create it from scratch. And they, they had decided already uh, that uh, it should be based in, uh, in San Francisco uh, on the West Coast in the US. That was a better place to start. Mm-hmm. And is that just because of the proximity to the other kind of tool, well, to the investment ecosystem there? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the different factors. Number one, the US is our biggest market, uh, most important market. Right. And second, that's the biggest market for investment and uh, innovation and uh, startup creation, and especially the West Coast in the US. So they thought it was better to start from here, from the West Coast, than to start from Paris, basically. Right, right. And and how, how was, it, was it a natural transition to go from the kind of primarily finance-related roles to, to more kind of innovation and investment roles? Uh, that That's not a straight line, usually. Mm-hmm. But in, in our corporation, it's possible to move from finance to marketing or vice versa. And uh, I, w- I was not only a finance person and a strong appetite for entrepreneurship, innovation, creating new things that, uh, that they saw. So this is why they thought about me. I think in between you, you were a special projects director, right? Before founding the CVC, what, what, what kind of projects were those? Yeah, that, that, that's a project I created on the side of my previous role. So I was in charge of a portfolio of brands, of vodka brands, and notably Polish vodka brands like Viborova. And that became a bit the underdog after the absolute acquisition. So we had to fight harder to get attention from the markets, the distribution companies, the Pernorica affiliates. And, and sometimes I realized it was very hard. So I developed a project, not only for the portfolio of brands I was in charge of, but all these secondary brands within Pernorica portfolio and defining a strategy to find alternative route to markets. If we can't get the attention of the main route to market, how can we give a chance to this brand to develop with alternative, like finding surplus-state distributor, creating incubators? So I, I, I created that project in parallel to my job. And I continue to do it for, for a year so that we can get the most of these, you know, secondary brands that have a great potential. Yeah. And I would imagine that's come in handy to when, when you're kind of assessing the, the viability of business models in, in the venture context, no? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's like the venture. Say you start from scratch, you don't have money, you have great assets or great idea that you need to figure out how to bootstrap more or less this business with uh, innovative ways. So I created that project, presented it to the top management. They like it. So th- this is how they saw my entrepreneurial spirit. And, uh, you know, as, as a former, you know, b- before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of, of Convivialité itself, as a, as a kind of former CFO yourself, because I know you were a CFO in, in, in Italy and Germany for, for Pernod, right? Yeah. What do you feel? Because there's always the kind of, it in, in the CVC world, there, there's a bit of a disagreement over, you know, if the CFO... Is, is, is the right person to report to as the CVC unit? Where, where do you kind of fall on that question? I don't have a strong point of view on this. 
I think it's not, I, I don't think it's the function, the most important, who you report to. It's more the mindset. Right. And also the sponsoring from the top. You, you need to have the endorsement from, from the CEO. I, I really believe in that. After, if a CVC reports directly to the CEO or to a top exec, that's not the most important. The, the most important that there is a very strong sponsorship at the top, and not only from one person, from a leadership team, which, which is our case. So that we have a very strong sponsorship from the, the leadership team, including the CEO. And uh, it, it shouldn't be dependent on one person only, I think. Because if it's dependent on one person, let's say the CFO say, oh, I think it's great, we should do it. And he managed to convince the CEO and the board to do it. And then the CFO, after a few years, is going to move to another role. And there is a new CFO, which is not open to innovation the same way, or think that the capital of the company should be allocated to the core business or to whatever or something else. And then it's going to, to disappear. So it has to be a, a, a collective endorsement from the leadership team, including the CEO. And I would say even from the board. Right. And is that something you had from the very beginning? Because I know that for, for a lot of CVCs, they had to do a bit of convincing, especially at the early stages when they're building up the unit. Was that, but was it always kind of like an easier ride? I, I didn't have to do the convincing because they, they decided to create it. Right, yeah. That's and, always and, and, then, and, and, and then they came to me. So they gave me a high-level brief, and after I had to go into the details and define more a bit in detail the strategy, how to do it. But, you know, after two years, I had to present to the board of the group. and the board. Before that meeting, I'm pretty sure that half of them were skeptical, to be honest, because, you know, usually the board, they like the corporate to focus on the core, what matters. So a CVC is always a bit more, more long term, you know, is more around innovation. And sometimes the board member don't like that because they think short term, we need to focus on what matters the most. While the CVC, by definition, is more looking long term. More longer horizon. Yeah. How, what kind of helped get them over that skepticism? I think they saw concretely, when they saw concretely what we were investing in and why and what we were doing with the startup, then they say, oh, I get it. And, and many board members came to me and, and they were very honest. And they say, you know, before I came here, I was not sure, blah, blah, blah. But now I understand and I think it's great. Well, yeah, well, let's get into the strategy a little bit. I suppose maybe at the, at the, at, at the basic level, how, how do you... How broadly or narrowly do you define your, your kind of focus here, right? Because bringing people together can mean a lot of things, right? So, so how do you how do you define the parameters there? Yeah, so we we have worked with other colleagues internally on looking at the trends and where you know uh, the future of what we call community or people socializing and having a great time goes, and we define some specific areas where we think these are these are relevant. But in a nutshell, if we think Think about vertical. It's around experiences, new experiences, entertainment, uh, hospitality. Uh, just to, to name a, a few vertical with a B two C business model. So it's all these new places or new occasions where people socialize, and uh, why they socialize, what they are looking for in this occasion, and 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 why it can become big business. Just beyond, or just beyond, you know, having a drink in a bar or in a club, you know. Do, do you take a lot of technology risk at all? Or, or, or what, what would constitute like an investable proposition in this space? No, we, we are not investing in technology as such. We, we, our core thesis is to invest in, in B2C, right. uh, model consumer uh, model, where we have a, a clear understanding 
of the pain point uh, from a consumer point of view. And the technology is an enabler. So it's, uh, you, you don't need usually deep tech uh, for that. Uh, you have some technology because you want to, to scale right. and, and, and reach the maximum number of consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it difficult to, to kind of assess where the, where the gaps in the market are there? Because if you think of like socializing, right? One would one would assume maybe that there's already a lot of places to do that, right? So so where do you find where the where the kind of hidden demand is that hasn't been exploited properly? I mean, we we have our own research internally, so uh, we have some you know global teams working on cultural foresight, analyzing you know trends and where the world is going. So we start from mega trends and uh, shifts in consumer demand. So we start from this thesis, and when we see startups who can crack this, you know, then you know we we are already a bit informed on what we are looking for. So th- when we come to startup that can crack this, then we have sometimes some haha moments. Say, well, that these guys are onto something. And what, what do those mega trends look like right, right now? Like what, what's been growing in demand over the past few years? One of the big mega trends is the shift from consuming product to living experiences. And that has started many years ago through different factors. Social media has played a role for that, but also maybe the, the environment, some consciousness about the environment and consuming less, but living experiences as a higher value also than just buying a physical product, especially for the new generation. And, and then the social media is playing a role because the young generation, they like to post also online what they do, what they are living. If they go to a festival of music, they are going to post this uh, event. They say, hey, I was here with my friends. Look at what looks. Amazing artists. If you go to Coachella, you are going to post a lot of pictures of that because it's so cool to get there. So if, if you give a choice to someone said, do, do you prefer to have a ticket for Coachella or to buy a, a new, uh, I don't know, bag? You know, you, you can bet that they will want to buy this ticket for Coachella. One of the, you know, if you were to rewind, you know, two years, I think one, one, one of the, what was at the time anyway, regarded as one of the most exciting frontiers in terms of new kind of social interactions that you could have was online, right? And, and, and you know, this was during like the kind of metaverse kind of craze and, and it was all about VR headsets and, and, and socializing online. Is that, and, and I know that obviously there's been so-called crypto winter and, and there's a bit less focus on Web3 now, but is that still kind of like a heavy area of focus that you're seeing demand for? We do uh, see a demand for for this. Maybe not for the full metaverse, you know, Ready Player One uh, stuff, but it's clear that with COVID, there has been an acceleration of technology around that and and people, you know, interacting online. Before COVID, part of our thesis, we had had put that space, which we call a virtual togetherness, so where technology could help people to be together while distant. You envision, you know, the, the metaverse world, the hologram, the, the whatever. So, but we, we thought it was very futuristic. Obviously, the COVID has accelerated it because some business have been developed during COVID to help people to interact together virtually. Some at that time thought, oh, the world is going there full speed and there is no way back. The reality is that people realize they need to meet in the real life too. So, and we do believe that people need to meet in real life even, even more. They realize the value of it even more uh, with COVID. Having, having said that, if you look at, you know, there are um, two billions of gamers in, in the world. People socialize online with their friends. They're happy the, to stay at home and, and, and play a game with their friends. 
So the, the, this is here. So we and so we are looking at this too. You know, we are it's part of our thesis. We we look at gaming, we look at the metaverse. We, we have made one investment in a, in a company called Wave, organizing virtual concert uh, with artists. So we it, we definitely recognize these new ways of uh, interacting that people can get fulfilled by interacting online with our friends. So it's definitely part of our thesis. Are we going to evolve? All of us in the metaverse tomorrow? No, we don't believe that because that that part of this technology, uh, yes. Well, it, it kind of highlights a, a a shift that there's been, right? And I, and I wonder in in for for your focus area, how significant that shift was from real world interaction to kind of socializing in the home, as you said. How, how you know what, what's the scale of that transition or change or or, or increase in demand? I mean, the, the, the home payment is part of our thesis too, that people like to have convivial moment in their home is a trend. And that has been also reinforced by COVID. It's also a mega trend in the world. You know, even, even in some countries where people were not used to socializing in their home, it's growing. I mean, I think about China. Historically, people just went out to meet with their friends in restaurants or KTV. Now they, they, they do have uh, their more convivial uh, moment in their place. So th- there is a global trend where people like to 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 host events or small parties in their home. And, and that has been probably uh, increased since COVID. Or they like to socialize in their home remote. Yes, that, 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 that that's a fact. But personally, during COVID, I, I threw a DJ party in my garage online. Well, what, uh, what did that entail? Was it the music and everything? Music through Zoom with my friends in the world, and it worked. I remember I, I played a lot of virtual uh, virtual poker with my friends during those couple of years. <laughs> Any yeah, anything to get your your head out of the <laughs> uh, <laughs> outside of your house anyway, even if your body yeah. has to stay in. Yeah, yeah. It's you, you know you you mentioned how you know in China people tend to to go out a lot, whereas you know may, maybe elsewhere they you know they, there's a lot more focus on on, on home tainment and. I, you know, whereas may, perhaps in other sectors, the, the geographical differences are based on, on, on you know, market dynamics or, or economics of, of that particular country. I would imagine that in for your focus areas, uh, there, there's also a, a, a larger than average kind of cultural element to it as well, right? Do you see the differences there? Yeah. I mean, what is fascinating is we are all human beings and people have the same needs. They want to socialize and have fun with their friends. That's a global uh, need of human and uh, you see global trends. Plus the world is global in terms of culture, you know. So just to give you an example, I was, I was in China last week, two weeks ago when it was Halloween. I was in Shanghai and people were celebrating Halloween in Shanghai. I was not expecting this, you know, like a typical US, you know, people, you know, people were dressed. It's a US typical celebration that people were celebrating in China, in the current environment where the world gets more divided. And this is where you see how the world is global in terms of culture. So that, that, there are global trends. That's It's like the artists, you know, you see the, the, take the K-pop from Asia, super popular in the US uh, and stuff like this. Having said that, you have cult- local differences. So when it take, comes to conviviality, if you take the, uh, the wedding, for instance, Go to India, wedding is a massive thing. So it's going to last a few days and it's very deeply rooted in the culture. Wedding also in China is very important and they are going to celebrate it 
in a certain way. We, we invested in a company in, in China, which is basically wedding halls. So you, you go to a venue and you have, you know, six rooms with, uh, you know, six weddings at the same time. So th this is not something you would find in the US or in Europe, where you would typically go to, I don't know, chateau or a nice house or whatever it is. There, it's very well organized with a lot of technology, super fancy, but it's different execution than what we would have in Europe or in US. So you see these trends, people still get married, they still want to celebrate with their friends, but they will do it in different ways. Is that, uh, is that uh, Bride Elysee? Bride Elysee, yes, that's it. You, you guys have some really interesting and kind of varied companies in your portfolio. So everything from, as you said, Bride Elysee to to you know more kind of maybe directly aligned with 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 uh, Pernod Ricard's uh, core business something like you know Boisson or 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 Brickhouse and then also something like like uh LOLO if if I'm pronouncing that right which is like a social gaming and live streaming platform so it, you guys you, you do take like a very broad view on 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 what it means to to kind of be together don't you yeah exactly so if if you take LOLO it goes back to virtual uh, togetherness because th this is the originally uh, streaming gaming platform where influencers will play live games with their fans. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is virtual togetherness, you know, and this is what we were fascinated with. We made we made that investment, and uh, and we and we work with them to figure out how can our brands play a role in that too with all these influencers. So I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I took a look at your website. You've got around ten people on the team, right? And how's your fund structured itself? Is it is it an evergreen, or do you guys have kind of fund vintages? It's evergreen from from the balance sheet. Interesting. And does that well, what advantages does that have for for the kind of focus areas you're you're looking at? But it's easier to set up. You don't have to you know right structure it as a as a VC fund when when you start and making contracts and so on. Right. You don't have to convince a board to do it this way. So. The advantage, it's easy. It's still part of a corporate environment. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's easier to operate. Okay. And, and does that give you, I mean, part of the advantage of an evergreen fund is that it gives you kind of time flexibility, right? You're not under time pressure to deploy X amount of capital or to execute an exit. Exactly. What kind of time horizons when you make an investment do you typically look at? I think we, we are aligned on market practice. So we don't uh, try to force uh, things. We have less pressure, of course, than uh, funds to exit and return money to our investor. They, they they do want to see some return, though, but uh, it's it's not the same as when you structure a fund. So then we we, we follow the interest of the startup. We are we are supportive of the startup, and we try to find the, the best outcome for everyone in in terms of exit. And sometimes we can stay also, even if some, some companies we think, okay, it goes public, maybe we sell, maybe we stay. It will depend on the strategic relationship we'll have built with the startups and if we want to keep it or if we think, you know, everybody's happy with that and we, and we can exit. Fair enough. And, and how would you characterize the relationship between uh, the parent company and, and, the, and the startups themselves? And, and well, for that matter, the, the CVC. So it's, you know, it's, it's part of our goal to create that relationship with the startups between the, the corporate and the startup. I think it's part, of, it's part of our pitch when we invest in startups. It's not only about the money uh, we can provide. We always discuss with the founders, okay, how can we help you? What can we do together? So we, we develop 
that thesis, that, you know, more, you know, strategic and partnership thesis where what could be the win-win benefit, what the corporate can bring to the startup and vice versa. And it's part of our investment thesis. And after the investment, we do our best so that it happens, activating our colleagues across the globe or based on the, on the startup and the corporate needs. And do, do you have any kind of uh, specific examples of, of, of in practice how that's, how, how that's kind of worked in a successful way? Yeah, we have, you know, we, we have a few. If I take uh, one of our main investments in a company called Fever, who uh, is the Netflix for experiences. So it's a, it's a marketplace. It's an app. I don't know if you are familiar with Fever. I, actually, they, they do operate in London too. Well, what, are they, what are they called, sorry? Fever. Fever, interesting. Netflix of experiences. That, that sounds really cool. Yeah, it's around experiences. So basically, if you don't know the app fever, you, you will get access to tickets and you can buy for different type of experiences that, you know, can be very curated, immersive experiences in particular. And, uh, and they do work with a big IP owner, actually like Netflix, like Warner, like Disney to create in real life experiences around their, their IP. They operate globally uh, in Europe, in, uh, in Americas and now, now in Asia. And um, and with them we we partner with we have our brands that can be sponsor of their experiences or we can even co-create experience together from scratch. That's what we we do. And how, where does Convivialita Ventures fall within Pernod Ricard's kind of wider innovation activity or or, or, or corporate innovation activity in, in terms of you know what what are the tools are there in the toolbox as it were? That's a fundamental question. So. Basically, the way I would summarize it is we are here to go and look for outside of the corporation what we don't know or what we can't do. You know, so corporate innovation is going to focus on, on what, what they are good at. You know, so our core business is alcohol. They are going to work on creating new products, line extension of existing products, but it's going to be very much related to the core business. They might stretch that a little bit sometimes if they feel good with that, but there is a lot of, we, we, we don't have the skills to create from scratch. Fever, for instance, we don't know how to do that. We don't have the technology. We don't have the culture. We don't have the people. So we are not going to create it from scratch. We are going to partner with them to co-create something together. So we, we go outside of the corporate to find what we don't know. I think one of the long, running trends right now in, in, in food and beverage is a kind of more, uh, a heavier focus on, on, on wellness and, and healthy kind of living and stuff. Has, have you seen a kind of shift in consumer attitudes uh, for that within the kind of wide, you know, broadly speaking, you know, the, the alcohol market? Yeah, we do see some trends there. There is a clear trend, as you mentioned, for wellness and well-being that in some part of the world, US or Europe, where people are more and more uh, conscious about their health and they drink less and less alcohol, especially the young generation. There, there are certain shifts from generation to generation for different reasons. Social media is playing a role too. You know, they want to be in control. They don't want, you know, to look bad and so on, which we, we agree with. And we do see that in some figures where young generation, you know, consume less alcohol or less frequently or even abstain from alcohol versus previous generation. So th there is this trend. And we see in the same time, the non-alcoholic drinks market growing, clearly. UK, US, yes. 
I mean, the beer company, they launch a while ago the non-alcoholic beer and they do good product. And, uh, and we see the same thing with non-alcoholic spirits or even premium soft drinks. More and more founders come with great product that tastes really good and then can be alternative to alcohol product. The, the challenge is, is to make a product that is very tasty, that you can really enjoy the same way you will enjoy a great glass of wine or cocktail if you don't put alcohol. Because alcohol is enhancing also the, the flavors. Okay, you don't, so how do you make that technically? And a lot of people are working and doing great stuff. And, and we have invested in a few uh, brands and startups uh, in that space. Parallel to the, to the wellness trend, there's also a, an increased focus on sustainability, right? All across the, the food sector. Is that something that, that you've seen a shift towards as well uh, in terms of consumer demand? Yes, absolutely. You, you see um, a greater consciousness of consumer and the attention to alors, not only sustainability for them, for their health. So they, they do look at calories for sure, especially on non products, you know, less sugar consumption. So they are very conscious about that. But then when it comes to packaging, you see a greater consciousness of consumer. They don't want a plastic bottle that are going to finish in the ocean. They want a lower impact on the planet from the CO2. So we are, we are aware of that and, uh, and, and working on finding solutions, helping our corporate colleagues also to find innovative solutions to reduce the impact on the planet. That, that, that's something that obviously they want to have, but do they, do they tend to avoid it if, if it's not sustainable yet? Is that, is that noticeable yet? I don't think we are there yet, but it, it might come. So we need, we, we need to adapt. We need to, we need to adapt to this and, and be prepared and find solutions for the good of uh, everybody. What's something about your sector that you think would surprise most people from the areas you invest in, from socializing or, or from you know food and drink or alcohol specifically? What's something that you think most people would say, oh, I didn't know that. That's quite interesting. Pretty everything except the non-alcoholic drinks because pe people think mm. we would in invest in uh, drinks. Right. So when we invest, uh, even in a company like Fever, they were not expecting this. Is that is that because they don't uh, kind of uh, understand the, the the investment itself, or or they just wouldn't expect you to to make that investment? I, I think there is a bias in general, and, and you can see that from investor in a financial market. They want you to do what you are good at. People want you to focus. If, if we are alcohol, people say, "Okay, you are investing in alcohol." Okay, you create a CVC, so you are going to invest in new whiskeys or gin and vodka. No, we don't invest in new whiskey, gin or vodka. It's the other way around. We invest in everything which is around, which is new, part of that space. And people don't expect that. And we, we, we spoke a bit earlier about some of the effect that, that the pandemic has had on, on where people socialize, you know, digital rather than physical or at the home rather than outside. What, what are some other kind of lasting effects that you've seen from, from COVID? I think with COVID, people realized how much physical interaction was important. If you, if you think about, if you look at China, where, you know, our colleagues that have been locked during two months in their apartment, you know, they, that was after the, this revenge, but they also, when they went out again, that they, people realized how much the, there is a value in interacting physically. So this, this has been strengthened after the COVID. I think there's been like a reveal. When you are missing something, you realize the value of it. There, there was certainly a frenzy. I remember right afterwards. I mean, the the everywhere was heaving. Every bar was packed. 
You know, I mean, it still is to an extent, but but I, I I certainly remember there being a distinct kind of peak period right after lockdowns yeah. where yeah. everyone was just trying to do everything possible to get out of the house. I think there is a second piece too, because people couldn't travel mm-hmm. and they realize they could live great experience where they live to, mm-hmm. you know, in, in their area and they don't need to take a plane to uh, have fun. Yeah. So I I think there is, even if, you know, people are a bit back to travel, but I think they realize the value of, uh, you know, entertaining and having great moments in their own area. And that is also good for the planet. That's interesting. Do you, do you feel that there's been a bit of a, almost like a decentralization of, of social spaces then? You know, it's not all going to be downtown. It's not all going to be, you know, wherever the, 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 the hot spot is, but all around. Is that, is that a noticeable trend? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because people had to explore. Okay. If we can't take a plane, you know, what can we do? What can we do in our area? So they, they, they explore more and, uh, and they realize it's not only, you know, going downtown to the cinema. They can do a lot of stuff in their neighborhood or in their area that are also great. And from an investor's point of view, how, how kind of significant is that trend? I think it's a pretty good, pretty important one. And we can see that through, through our portfolio company. Fever is one clearly that has benefited from this because it's not for tourists necessarily, it's for locals. What can you do in your area? There is another portfolio company uh, we have called Resort Pass. So you can buy a ticket for a vacation. So you go to a local hotel. So for instance, here in the Bay Area, you know, you have a lot of hotels in the Napa or Sonoma Valley where you can go for a day, buy a ticket and enjoy the resort, the pool, the spa, the amenities. And that, that has been booming and it's still continuing. It has boomed during COVID and it's still continuing post-COVID. So people realize that new, new business have been created like this. Same with a company called Avanstay, in which we are, same, you know, renting big houses. So you can drive there and have a great time with your friends and a hospitality type of uh, service. Now, I have to say it's not often when, when, because a, a lot of, the, the the firms that uh, that that we talk to and, and look at a lot of it's a lot of B two B offerings, right? So so it's not often that you kind of scroll down someone's portfolio and and think, oh, I'd like to try that. Oh, and that and that looks cool too. And I'm and I'm getting that when I'm when I'm kind of looking through what you guys have invested in, really. So I might you know uh, <laughs> I might try a few of these out. One of the our VC friend he summarizes it: Community venture is the only fund funding fun. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> how, how does that feel to to be the the kind of standard bearers for for having a good time rather than just you know investing in something that might uh, might make some money? The, I mean, the good the good thing it's it's a clear point of differentiation, right? Because uh, no one else is taking that space basically. Mm-hmm. So especially in a, in the Silicon Valley where it's as you say it's more around B two B and uh, tech product. Mm-hmm. So it's unexpected, but at least people uh, remind us and uh, it helps us to get a good deal flow and people think about us. Well, speaking of deal flow, at the end of the show, I always like to ask for the benefit of, of the founders and startups who may be listening, what's the best way to get in touch with you? And, and when they manage to get in the room or, or on the Zoom call, what is it that you want to hear from them in their pitch? So to, to reach out to us, the best way is to ping us on LinkedIn, usually, or send us an email. And it's not very complicated for people to figure out what is our email. And, and, and we do answer. And then when we when we meet with founders, the, the one thing I like, the first thing I like to hear is the vision of the founder. 
most of them give it spontaneously. This is what I'd like to, to understand first. How did you come with this idea? Which big problem do you want to solve? You know, and why? That, that's the entry point. After, of course, you know, we want to hear about, you know, the product, business metrics. So usually we, we like to invest when there is a product, there are some revenue that can validate the idea. Usually more from series A versus, uh, seed. Series A or B is our sweet spot. So we, we like to hear about the business, how it's going, the top line and, uh, the, the product market fit. And we love to hear about the team also and, uh, you know, their background and how they see the business. In the past, what have been some things that, that founders come in, you know, with a pitch that, that have kind of turned you off right away and said, maybe that's not one for us? If the pain point on the market is not big enough. It's more a general observation from any VC, probably the one I'm making, but if you, if you don't have a big problem to solve, people might not be ready to pay for it. You know, if it's just a nice to have, then how can you create a business? If it's a nice to have, you will have to spend a lot of money in marketing to get some awareness and fight versus other competition. So there needs to be a big pain point with a, a clear answer to that, I think. And then on the corporate side, what are some things that corporate parents can do a better job of, generally speaking, or, or more of to, to help their CVCs and startups? I think the corporate, they need to have a long-term view on the CVC. The CVC is not necessarily something that is going to help the core business short-term to grow top-line and bottom-line. Usually, it's, it's really part of an innovation strategy that helps to think long-term and find solutions for the future. So they should protect the CVC from economical downturn or a change of people internally that have different views. It has to be a long-term commitment somehow and uh, calibrate it so that it, it delivers the long-term benefit that you know the corporate is expecting. I think that's the, the biggest advice I would give. And well, I, I would imagine it's uh, it's easier to convince them of that when uh, when when fun is your USP, right? <laughs> yeah, but still, you know, any corporate can you know change their mind and say, okay, our CVC is great, but maybe now we do something else. Uh, you know, so the, the most important is to be clear on day one on why are we creating this CVC? What's the purpose? What are we expecting from it? What are the goals? How how can we measure success? And um, if it's just a fancy tool, how we do that? Because a lot of people are doing it, and let's see what. It, gives it's it's not a good start so it has to be very clear from what are the objectives what are we looking for and long term well i think that, that that's as good a note as any then stefan to, to to wrap things up Thank, thanks so much and like i said I, I will be i will be taking a look through uh through the companies you invest in to see if there's anything you know some app that i might download to to enjoy some of this myself because it because it all looks pretty sure. uh pretty appealing i have to say you should <laughs> i will and thank, thanks so much for, for joining me on the show. And uh, it, it's very early where you are. So, you know, I hope you enjoy the, uh, the, the rest of your day. Have a great evening. That's it for this week's show, folks. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the show so you never miss out on any future episodes. And on that note, just a quick note before we go, we will be breaking for the holiday season in mid-December. So our last show of the year will be on Monday, December 11th. And we'll be back again in the new year with new and exciting guests. I have been Fernando Moncada. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from Inner Production. Go check out his work today at innerproduction.com. We'll be back again next week, as ever. Until then, have a good one. <laughs>